Welcome back to the Boss Ladies Podcast, hosted by myself, Swalia. And myself, Monacy. We're so excited to see all of you guys here today, especially in person, because all of our recordings so far have been online. So um, it's no better place to kick off a live podcast than South by Southwest. Yeah, we could not be more excited to be here. So I want to know, how's everyone feeling today? Like, where's that? Yeah, we love to see it. Yeah, yeah. love the energy in the yes. room. We're so excited for today. Yeah. So Ollie and I have some really interesting topics we want to talk about um, and are very applicable to just South by Southwest and the energy that's been mm-hmm. here all week. So we're so excited. Yeah. Is it anyone else's first time here? Yeah. Oh, it looks like we share yeah. something in common. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm based in Dallas, Texas, so I could not be more excited to be repping here at South by Southwest as a native Texan. And Montessi is our local California export, but we're so happy to have you here <laughs> as well. Yeah. So I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Um, I think we'll go ahead and introduce each other, actually, um, something we thought we'd do, and it might be a little more interesting for you guys to just see the dynamic we have, but I'll start by introducing Swalia. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with her. You read her bio, but Swalia is really interested in ad tech. She's done so many different projects um, in the realms of diversity, linguistics, technology, but one of her biggest projects has been equally um, developing an NLP algorithm to detect implicit bias in text. and so. That's been just such an interesting project to see from the intersection of linguistics and tech, like I said. But she's also done so much work with diversity, equity, and inclusion, both within her community, but also at a global level. Um, and Swalia is just so interesting. And I think one of the things that really makes her stand out is the fact that she has such a strong impact, both within her own community, but also at a global scale. Yeah, and I love that intro. Thanks so much, Monacy. And Monacy is always pushing the capabilities of what is possible, but her main focus has been at the intersection of AI and women's health. So one of her biggest projects was an AI-powered tool to detect um, and track irregularities in women's menstrual cycles. And she has also built models for detecting and diagnosing reproductive health diseases. Outside of that, Monacy also has worked in policy across different levels within the education system at both a state and national level. Yeah, so I think this is a good place to kick it off just by saying both of us have a lot of experiences both within our communities but also um, at larger scales, whether that be at a national level, level or a global level. And so I think it would be really interesting to kick off the conversation talking about uh, sort of those learnings that we've had both um, Uh, making impact at a global scale, but also within our own communities and how the intersections of just different stakeholders uh, within both of these levels are really important, sort of the biggest lessons we've learned. So we wanted to start by talking about some of our learnings tackling like the world's biggest problems, right? So Swalia, do you want to sort of elaborate on that and share some of our previous experiences tackling the world's biggest problems? Yeah, so like I was mentioning earlier, my main focus is in education while modesty is looking at women's health. So when we're talking about world's biggest problems, we're talking about anything from looking at carbon emissions, um, looking at societal issues as well. Um, It can be any industry from food tech to climate, agriculture, biology, and the main thing that we really wanted to touch on was what's the difference between looking at world's biggest problems and technological development and societal movements, and where is the intersection between both of those categories? Right, so I think both of us have experience uh, in policy at a larger scale, right? So looking at policy movements and social movements, whether that be the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement, 
and how these differ from techno tech technology and technical developments because we're seeing the rise of tech and deep tech a lot um, within society. And so I think that there are very characteristic principles that apply to both of these. But um, what sort of differentiates both of them, right? Like who are the stakeholders in each one and how do communities sort of drive impact at both of these scales? So I think it'd be interesting to sort of focus on social movements, right? And how culture sort of ties in with a lot of the social movements we have, right? And uh, I think especially being Generation Z and also uh, having a more of a youth perspective on a lot of these social movements, uh, where do youth come in, Swalia? Like, what do you think our generation and what sort of role have we played in a lot of these social movements that we see? Well, one thing that really sets Gen Z apart or something that's been very characteristic of Gen Z is the integration of technology in the digital world that we have. So it's almost an extension of ourselves and we don't really have really a boundary between the digital world and our real world. So when it came to social movements like the Black Lives Matter movement that we saw in 2020, um, we took it upon ourselves to advocate um, for what we felt was the right thing through social media. And that was something that was unique and was unprecedented in a way. It wasn't something that um, that form of advocacy was usually done in person, right? But we said the whole world is under lockdown, but that's not gonna stop us from continuing to advocate and be activists ourselves. I don't think we've ever really had a time in history like this where you know, the whole world is sort of in lockdown, right? Like we're all at home. None of us are interacting with each other in person, but yet we're seeing so much change occur within communities, but also at a global level. And we're seeing marginalized groups really share their voices. And I think the fact that we have enabled technology and especially social media to accelerate these movements has really allowed different groups to bring out their voices. Um, and I think that's a very cornerstone aspect of a lot of our social movements is that We've, we've brought upon ourselves to bring out different voices that haven't really been prevalent in communities before. And I think, you know, within in-person interactions, it's often hard to amplify certain voices, but I think through the digital world, it's been really easy for us to integrate principles like diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really bring out uh, these groups, for sure. Yeah, one thing I wanted to ask you, Monesi, was um, where does DEI intersect with something like technological development? Because it's not usually an intersection that we discuss, or it's usually seen as two things that are different um, and don't always seem easily compatible. Right, so I think we should make that shift talking more about technological development a little bit. But I think that diversity, equity, and inclusion are such cornerstone aspects and very principal in the development of technology, right? Because when we think about you know, technology and deep tech, there's two sides to it, right? There's the actual development, research and development side, but there's also the application. And so I think the biggest gaps, one of the biggest gaps we have right now in society is that gap between actual development, research and development, and actual application within industries and uh, within communities, right? Integrating technological solutions to uh, in turn impact communities hands-on and impact certain people. And so. I think that technology is very much so defined by its impact and the way that it affects certain people. And so when we think about making technology more equitable and making it a resource that's uh, prevalent within all communities, we really have to think about uh, sort of that two-way feedback loop, right? Like how are certain communities and the needs of people driving technical development, but also how is technical development being used within communities and how is that 
sort of integration of technology within communities and within people's lives really becoming more cornerstone and becoming more prevalent. And so I think diversity, equity, and inclusion, going back to your question, is a key aspect of this because uh, a lot of these social movements have given rise to our awareness of different groups and the awareness of equity, rights, um, and the way that we're treating certain groups in society and the sort of resources they have, whether that be within education, within healthcare, or so many different systems. And so when we're acknowledging the needs of these groups and also what they're lacking or uh, what needs to be amplified, what needs they have that we really need to be more attuned to, uh, I think we can sort of use that knowledge to drive the technical development we're making, but also in turn uh, make sure that the technology we're developing, whether that be applications or you know, uh, actual products that we're making, are in turn uh, made more of an option for certain groups. Yeah, and one thing I also wanted to explore was how do we define diversity, equity, and inclusion? Because the first thing that usually comes to most people's minds when we talk about DE and I is gender and race. But DEI encompass encompasses everything from who has access to health, socioeconomic background. And when we're talking about the education system, we're not just looking at those who may be academically performing um, not as well, but also what are about the gifted and talented students? Are we serving the needs of those groups as well? Are we challenging them? So it's about everybody who is considered a special group or may not fit into the standard or deviate from the norm. That all is encompasses under DE&I. I think that also brings up an important point of like considering stakeholders within systems, right? So when we're developing solutions, who are we considering? I think that there are certain groups that we default to when we consider you know, development. But I think we, like you said, have to consider all groups within a system, not just those that you know, seem to be affected by problems at the eye, right? So within healthcare, for example, uh, often we're focused on the patients, which is right. We should be focused on the patients because they're the ones that are being impacted by the healthcare. But we also have to think about providers, right? Um, we have to think about doctors, nurses, surgeons, but we also have to think about people uh, at, within policy, right? Like who is developing uh, the policy, FDA, things like that. There's a lot of different stakeholders we often don't consider. Um, and we have to innovate and develop with these stakeholders in mind, right? And uh, I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of only thinking about patients um, or only thinking about people who are you know, at the very end of this receiving line, but you have to think about the people that are uh, you know, administering solutions and sort of are um, affected along the way. Yeah, another thing I was curious about is how do communities as a whole and collectively drive innovation versus just individuals working to solve problems on their own? How do communities as a whole drive innovation? I think, again, it's very, very much so like a two-way street. I think that uh, especially a lot of innovation comes back to communities, right? We have to innovate with communities in mind, but also communities are the basis of a lot of developments that we see, especially uh, those that are more social and socially inclined movements. Communities are at the root of what we are doing. And so I think when innovation is very community-driven and community-led, that's where a lot of the biggest impact comes because we're actually acknowledging the needs of people um, within a community, and I think this also goes to say, it's not just about acknowledging one community or one group of people, but we have to be very attuned to the diverse needs of different communities, whether that be uh, you know, within the United States or around the world, understanding 
okay, there's you know communities that look very different, that have very different needs, very different religions, are at different points in their life, and how are we developing solutions that are you know equitable for all of them? So, for example, when I think about women's health, one of the biggest things I think about is, you know, obviously there are a lot of women's health needs in the United States. We are not, you know adequately diagnosing reproductive disorders. There's a lot of issues with menstrual equity, but um, that's just in the United States. And, you know, I think there's a lot of different groups we don't often think about in women's health, right? There's the average woman that's, you know, between 18 and 25, but there's also teenagers, right? Like, how are we developing infrastructure around women's health to better serve teenagers? Um, how are we building infrastructure around women's health to serve women of color or women, um, that are you know much older than 18 or 25, right? There's so many different age ranges. There's so many different uh, voices that really need to be amplified, especially in the realm of women's health. And I know you can probably say the same for education. And not even in the United States, right? Like going outside of the United States where there's a lot of rich culture, for example, in like East Asia or South Asia, how are we integrating uh, products or solutions for women's health? Um, without you know, disrupting culture and really letting culture be the barrier to entry, right? So very often it's hard to innovate within women's health or develop adequate solutions because culture is a main blocker or policy especially. So making sure that a lot of the de development that we have and a lot of the innovation that we're making um, is attuned to the cultural and political environment of a community as well. Yeah, I find it really interesting that you were talking about scaling solutions across the globe and how they would have to adjust and adapt to fit the needs of that specific community. And something else that reminds me of is how has globalization changed the way we innovate today and how we exchange ideas and just how we develop and problem solve in general? I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, Ashley, because I think that you have looked at the education system in many different places. and so. I think it'd be really interesting to think about education in this context. I'm excited to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so the first thing I think of when you talk about education and globalization is just education ecosystems. So each education system obviously differentiates and varies a lot, but the end goal of the education system is to prepare the student population for either secondary education or later on the workforce, or that's what they attempt for the system to do. Um, so if we look at the education system in the U.S., a lot of it's based on content knowledge and knowledge transfer. But if you go and look at Finland, it's not just about knowledge transfer. It's also about uh, teaching students how to teach themselves, these types of life skills that would be applicable in any aspect of their life and not just success in college. And so another ecosystem that I think about um, is also Dubai's ecosystem. So they actually have a whole organization called Dubai's Knowledge and Human Development uh, Association. And I find this really interesting because we don't have that same group within the US, but this sort of intention of looking at human development and knowledge and not just looking at content transfer and academics and graduation rates is something that I found really fascinating when we talk about um, just the way education is structured. And I think looking at different countries and looking across the globe is something that's an opportunity that we should take advantage of because we can definitely benefit from the ideas that already exist and are already being implemented in other locations around the world. Yeah, and so I think just adding on to that, I think that's very much so related to why Swali and I are able to work on problems at a global scale but also bring back a lot of these learnings within our own communities, right? Like you said, 
education differs so vastly in different countries, the way that the system is set up, the way that different stakeholders are affected, and even the formation of different authorities and associations that really dictate the way that education is shaped. And I think the same goes for healthcare, for example, right? And so uh, when we think about bringing these learnings back into our communities, how are we exploring how problems affect different communities in different countries around the world? Really exploring these intersections and understanding how we can use these learnings to in turn benefit our own communities, right? So uh, whether that be through creating new groups, um, really bringing out youth voice and amplifying youth voice, or you know maybe, I, th I think there's a lot of systems that we can emulate within our own communities. And so really un understanding which systems are serving other countries or communities well and understanding how we can bring that back into our own communities is a really inter interesting discussion um, that we could have. But uh, I also want to ask just what your experience has been like uh, working on you know education at a global level and then bringing a lot of those principles back into your own community. Um, because I know that a majority of your work centers around education and ed tech. And I think it'd be interesting to just hear more about uh, how you've been able to look at education in a global context and realize you know, what gaps your own community and school district might have. Yeah, so my main work has been at the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council within my district. And the main thing that I found really interesting is just how relationships within our community um, can drive potential ideas. So another aspect of my community that I've also worked in is the Safety and Security Council. So when we were talking about preventing violent incidents within our district, one of the first things that was mentioned was clear backpacks or metal detectors. And while these sound like effective solutions, being at the table with teachers and faculty members from around the district um, made it really clear why this might not make sense. So what might sound good um, doesn't always work in actuality. So I think having those different perspectives is something that I found to be really valuable and really insightful. For, so for something like metal detectors, while it might eliminate the possibility of bringing weapons into school, you also have to think about what type of environment does that create for students. So I found it really important and again, really beneficial that there were people in that room, in that table, very conscious of what student experience was like and what it meant to create an environment that fostered learning. So somebody at that table, their main goal may be just to create a very safe and very secure school, right? But we need to have different perspectives at the table that aren't just thinking about one particular goal and that are looking at what is the other effect and the other side of implementing a solution like this. Right, and so I think that's why the perspective of many different stakeholders is important in any system because when we bring in multiple groups of people, we're understanding how we're designing solutions that are equitable for all people and not just the people that are affected you know, at the receiving end, but people that are within a system, right? Or within a community, and I think that's very important. Yeah, I actually wanted to hear your experiences on how it's been like to create change and implement projects in your own community, because I know you've done a lot of interesting things. What type of conversations have you had? What have you learned? And just anything else that you've picked up along that journey? Yeah, and so I can elaborate on that a little bit. I've worked a lot, especially in the state of California, um, and also bringing back a lot of statewide and national policy into my own community. But, uh, you know, for example, one of the biggest experiences I've had or some of the biggest learnings I've had is in implementing ethnic studies within the state of California. So as a bit of context, I think uh, by 2025, ethnic studies will be a graduation requirement across all high schools in California. And that's a really interesting requirement because we've never had any policy like that before. 
um, especially pertaining to education. This is a huge move. Um, and so in you know, implementing some of this policy and advocating for this bill to be passed, I think I've learned a lot. Uh, particularly, again, going back to stakeholders, understanding how different stakeholders are affected by uh, things like this, right? So, you know, as a student and as, you know, being a woman of color, I think it's really interesting exploring ethnic studies within high schools. And I go, I live in a primarily, you know, white community, and so I think it's very interesting to me to have sort of this culture embedded and to begin having more of these discussions within my own community and within my own school. But something I never really considered until working on a lot of this is how you know teachers are impacted by this, right? So you know while I might be on the receiving end of this bill, I'm the one who is you know learning the curriculum and participating in this class. The teachers are the one who is who are teaching this class, right? And so it was interesting to see how many teachers actually did not feel comfortable teaching this class, and how many teachers were saying, you know, I don't think I'm qualified enough to teach an ethnic studies class. You know, even if you give me the curriculum. I don't think I can facilitate these discussions. And that was really powerful for teachers to stand up and say, this is right and this is something we should do, but I as a person am not well equipped to have these conversations. I think that brings about the question of why, like why are teachers not equipped to have these conversations, right? Um, and so when we think back to systems, uh, you know, even going back to Dubai, having a knowledge in human development authority, uh, I think that the education system, you know, I've done a lot of work within the education system in you know, the United States and California, our system is very much so focused on higher education a lot more than it is on human development. And I think that's a key part that we are really missing within education. That's something that we need to begin stepping up to acknowledge because I think the fact that many teachers, um, even ones who come from very interesting backgrounds, who aren't white, who aren't male, you know, women, uh, women of color especially are saying, I, you know, even having these experiences, I can't teach this class. And so, you know, obviously there are steps being taken place, you know, teacher training, there's so many options to combat this, but I think the fact that people are stepping up and, you know, acknowledging how they're impacted by certain policies really goes to sh show the importance of stakeholders within a system. Yeah, I'm actually curious to hear more about just implementing ethnic studies within your community. What does that mean specifically to you? And what do you think that means to your fellow students? Yeah, so I think um, I think there's a very diverse set of perspectives that come with, for example, ethnic studies. If we, you know, are going to keep talking about this, but uh, I think it's really interesting to look at, you know, curriculum like ethnic studies or diversity as a requirement rather than, you know, very inherent interests that students have. Because I, you know, can undoubtedly say that you know, my school is diverse. All schools are diverse. Communities are diverse, um, but there is also uh, you know, a sense of, especially in high school, is a sense of I'm only here for a certain reason, right? Like, I also live in the Bay Area. I think the culture is very different. Um, but, you know, it's hard to implement diversity and, like, teach students a lot of this curriculum when you're in a high school and people are, you know, focused on all sorts of other things, right? Um, so I think it's always been interesting to me, you know, diving into, for example, ethnic studies and exploring, like, why is this a requirement, right? Like, why are we not making this an elective or an option that students can choose to take, but why are we making this a requirement? In my head, it's very much so, you know, going back to Dubai, like the, you know, human knowledge and knowledge and human development authority, right? We are, we're sort of integrating these policies and these systems as a requirement because we're trying to make structural change. Um, and I think while this is right in some ways, I think that there's a lot of things we could be doing differently within the education system 
when it comes to implementing more diversity and implementing more diversity within curriculum, right? Like for example, you know, a question that I often ask myself and ask other stakeholders is, uh, why is this, you know, a separate class, right? Like why can't we integrate this curriculum into all classes, whether that be humanities classes or, uh, you know, math classes or science classes, right? Um, and I think the fact that the infrastructure we have around education, the education system we have, isn't developed enough to the point where we can adopt these principles within the classes we already have. It says something about our education system and the way it's functioned for a long time. Yeah, one thing I wanted to touch on is you're talking about policy and systemic change, and I'm not sure how this is necessarily be implemented at a policy level, but one thing when I think about something like ethnic studies and curriculum is not just about the content we're delivering, but like you were mentioning mm -hmm. earlier, who is delivering that curriculum Absolutely. and who is qualified to deliver that curriculum. And so I think, like I was mentioning earlier, one of the most important and influential uh, solutions that can be implemented within a community to enhance student learning are the teachers themselves. When we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, we're not just talking about content curriculum or solutions and policy. We're also talking about people and what types of relationships we're fostering within an environment. Because like I was mentioning, just relationships that you can have, like there's nothing that can replace student experience and one-on-one -on -one connection with students. There's nothing that can replace having a first-hand perspective and holding those conversations. So that's one thing that I was just like considering while you were talking about curriculum. Yeah, and I think this is very applicable in women's health in the healthcare system, right? Because that sort of one-on-one -on -one connection between teachers and students is also prevalent within, you know, doctors and uh, patients, right, and healthcare providers. And so, you know, even making this connection back to women's health, the way that you know women are able to connect with providers, especially about issues that are very vulnerable and stigmatized, is really, really important. Um, and nothing can really replace that connection other than making sure that we are maintaining that connection. I think we need to sort of, you know, not necessarily adopt solutions that are, you know, overlying or lying on top of the stru structures we have, but I think we need to go in and understand what problems exist within systems themselves in order to make equitable change. Another thing I'm curious about is you mentioned stigma within the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, how do you address an issue like this that doesn't necessarily have a technological solution? I mean, it's more of like a human thing. What would that even look like? Right. So I think talking a little bit about women's health, it's interesting because, uh, you know, the, you guys are, might be familiar with femtech, right? Like it's a huge market. Um, it's really not niche anymore. But there's a lot of technology around women's health. There's applications, there's you know, technical devices that we can use, but um, in terms of actually using these devices, how are these reaching a large range of people and how are these reaching uh, a diverse range of people, right? And so uh, when we think about uh, developing solutions that sort of go past culture and stigma, we have to think about, again, like I said, really changing the system. And that's not an easy thing to do, right? Like how do we change systems that have been present and prevalent for decades and centuries. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, and so I think when we understand about impacting systems and systems at their core, we have to really understand, like I said, the stakeholders within a system and begin gathering a wide range of perspectives in order to even consider uh, changing a system, right? Like I think we have to go in and actually talk to people because you know, I might be Indian, but I have no idea the way healthcare works in South Asia or in India and understanding the way that women's health is really structured in that place. Um, 
And so I think we can't rely on you know, certain backgrounds or biases that we have to really carry us through. I think it's really about breaking the biases we have and going in and talking to people, right? So I think that's the first thing. And I think, uh, you know, another part of it is also, like you said, like technical development can only get us so far. It's actually about application. So when we think about application, we have no other choice than to work within a system. We have to work with you know, governmental organizations or NGOs or nonprofits to actually scale solutions because when we're going in and impacting a system, we have to go ground up, right? Like we can't say, okay, we've developed this app for women in India, here, go and use it. We have to understand uh, certain barriers that might block people from getting access to that application or access to that tool. So whether that be, you know, they don't even have digital mobility, right? Like they don't even have phones or they don't know how to use phones. Um, that might be a barrier or uh, just cultural stigma is also something, it's really hard to tackle and I think we also have to be very respectful of it uh, when we're going around uh, implementing solutions that are in areas, implementing solutions in areas that have heavy culture. So. I think that there's not necessarily a right answer to this just because it's different in any situation, but I think the biggest aspect of this is really considering different perspectives and stakeholders because no change can be made until we understand how problems are impacting people um, and really understand their perspectives and their needs, right? And you know, no one knows a city like you do until you, know, you live there and that's your home. And so when you're talking to people and you wanna you know, roll out solutions in their home, you have to talk to them because uh, they're the ones who know how the system works. And then something you mentioned was that we have to go ground up. So I was curious to hear, um, is there a place that top-down solutions or projects fail? Or like, what is that gap? And like, how would you compare the both? I know these are phrases that are usually thrown a lot, thrown around a lot. If you could break that down, I think that'd be really helpful. Right, so I think um, I gave a little bit of an example to this earlier, but I think top-down solutions are very much so uh, rolling out technology or solutions in an area and sort of just expecting them to infiltrate people, right? And I don't think that's naturally how it occurs. I think we have to understand that solutions that are impactful go from people to the system, not from the system to the people. Um, I'm, here, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this as well. It's interesting you said, so top-down is from the system to the people, right? Versus you're saying on the ground is from people to the system. Yeah. So I would say, like what we were mentioning earlier, the thing with top-down is the people are the last step, right? So I feel like when you're developing a solution, not even just developing a solution, when you're identifying a problem, the first step, or one of the first steps, should always be talking to people. People shouldn't be an afterthought it's always most effective to get validation, to get insight in the early stages, which is why I think on-the-ground projects are something that usually makes the most sense when we're piloting projects. But it doesn't mean that um, not living in that environment or not being on the ground is a barrier to be able to solve a problem, right? There are always other ways to connect with people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and. I think something that we should talk about and might be relevant here is how do you connect with people that live in other areas than you, right? So I think we're all privileged. I mean, I'm privileged enough in Swaliyats as well to live um, in the United States where there is a lot of diversity, but you know, especially as youth, it's hard to go out of our immediate environment and connect with people all over the world. So what have your experiences been with this and how do you begin to connect with people that don't live in your immediate environment? Well, like we were mentioning the theme of social media and technological 
evolution earlier, did the digital world is integrated into our day-to-day -day space. So today, we can just pull out our phones and Google a name or a location on LinkedIn, and rows and rows of names will be pulled up. So I think this easy access to really being able to look up anybody's email, anybody's location, anybody's like job is a really great first step. Just looking at platforms is one way to connect. And I think um, one of the barriers to connecting with people is just thinking that they won't respond or it's like not worth their time. But I think getting rid of that preconceived notion that they're not going to respond shouldn't be a barrier. So I, that's what I would say. Just know, like, bias to action. Don't let preconceived notions stop you from reaching out to somebody. Honestly, I feel like Soy and I have gotten pretty good at breaking <laughs> that fourth wall and just reaching out to people. Um, yeah, and like you said, like, we're always so scared of not getting a response, right? But, like, what's the worst that can happen? They don't respond. Like, your life isn't going to end. But I think we all know that. But um, I, I think that, you know, yeah, like you said, bias to action. But I think also understanding the power we have especially as youth is really important right and so I think that I'm privileged enough to be in a position where people often say yes to me because I'm a teenager right I'm interesting they haven't really talked to a teenager before um, and they're curious as to like why I'm even reaching out to them and so I think I sort of have that benefit of the doubt where people honestly will say yes and talk to me just because they're like oh like why why is a 16 year old talking to me right now like okay I mean why not she might be interesting right um, so I think that's one thing, but also I wanted to ask sort of that balance between seeing social media as a bad thing and a good thing, right? Because I think uh, very often we're surrounded by negative notions of what social media is. It's, you know, it's harmful for our mental health, it's detrimental, but how do we sort of find that balance of, you know, maintaining um, who we are and our personal identity within this whole world of social media where we can see everyone's personality, we can see pretty much their whole lives but also using it as a tool to foster you know, global connections. Yeah, I like that you touched on it being a tool as well, because I was going to mention that um, having access to all this information, to be able to go on any platform, these are opportunities that we should take advantage of, right? But with any tool, there are always pros and cons. There's always a negative effect or a positive effect. It's just all about how you use that tool, right? It's not inherently negative or positive. So when you ask what are the negative effects of social media, well, I think we've seen that pretty clearly in the news and the media when you compare the rate that social media has um, almost infiltrated into society and mental health rates. It can almost become an obsession to spend time on these platforms. It can create a co-comparison culture. It can be overwhelming to have all of this information at the tip of your hands, to see everybody in the world and see what their lives are like. And so it's not just you comparing yourself to your own community. You're comparing yourself to the rest of the world. I mean, that wasn't a thing about 30 years ago, so it's only natural that's overwhelming. But the other side to that is, yes, you might be able to compare yourself to the rest of the world, but the way I like to think about it is you're able to learn from the rest of the world and gain perspective from places that you would never have access to previously. So I think what I would want to focus on instead of this comparison culture is how can we, again, take advantage of this and use this to build new relationships and almost foster a society in a world that's more interconnected um, than ever before and is able to share experiences that otherwise wouldn't have been possible to share otherwise. We're almost crossing boundaries through social media. 
So again, that same theme of the real world is the digital world. There is no boundary anymore between who you can be friends with, who can be your mentor, any of those things. Yeah, and I think social media is also very good about establishing culture, right? Um, I think it's, it's very good about just being clear and connecting with people, but establishing a culture and, uh, you know, shared ideals within groups of people. So we're seeing a lot of uh, movements or groups of people really turn to social media as a way to establish a community and really represent who they are. Um, I think that is powerful in a lot of different ways because, you know, often you even think a few decades ago, the perspectives we would have were limited to where we lived, right? Pretty much everything, our future, uh, the people we connect ourselves with, our religion, any aspect of our life is so solely dependent on location. And the fact that location isn't a barrier anymore is insane to me. I think the fact that both of us are even on this stage here today is just really beautiful. Actually, something I wanted to ask you, you mentioned earlier, uh, the formation of identity. I want to ask you about your experiences and how you've been able to form your identity. Um, because I think it's not just forming identity from your environment, but also it's like one step larger from the things you've seen in social media and the digital world, just any of those types of different communities, right? Do you think like forming my identity through being part of communities, different communities? Yes, forming your identity through different types of communities, but also the people that you've been able to follow, uh, because I think there's a different level of representation um, that you have access to because of the digital world that you wouldn't normally um, from your own community. Like you were mentioning, your community isn't necessarily the most diverse, right? But that hasn't stopped you from being able to find role models and people you feel like you can personally connect with. Right, I think one of the biggest things that's shaped my life in the past few years is having access to so many different perspectives around the world. And I think I have friends that live in like dozens of countries and I think that has allowed me to learn so much more about myself and what matters to me as an individual. Um, and even in understanding the types of problems that I care about, um, it's been really powerful, right? So even understanding you know, my own relationship with women's health and the fact that this problem is so relevant to me and so many other women, and the fact that I've been able to connect with women all over the world who are impacted by this issue has you know, helped me even realize what problems I care about as an individual and what problems I want to go forth and solve. So I'm curious to hear, what makes you care about a problem? What makes me care about a problem? That's a really good question. I think, um, I don't know how familiar everyone is with like effective altruism, right? But it's sort of this whole idea of, you know, certain problems are worth spending more time on or, you know, worth focusing on, right? And so when we think about what makes an interesting problem to solve and what we should really be focusing our time and efforts on, there's often three main buckets, right? So one is, uh, the number of people impacted by a problem. So is it you know, a, a problem that exists just within your own community? Is it dozens of people that are impa impacted by a certain problem? Or is it hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people, or millions and billions of people around the world, right? So if we think about climate change as an example, it's something that affects all of us. The numbers are huge, right? Um, in comparison to maybe water contamination in a specific town or a specific city, um, that might be much less, you know, a smaller number of people. And then we think about also the quality of the problem. So the way in which a problem might impact certain people. Um, for example, women's health brings about a lot of pain and about a lot of suffering. It impacts the quality of life of people. Um, and you know, climate change, for example, I think there's a variety of adverse effects that come about it, right? So there's obviously you know, uh, health inequities and things that, you know, health issues that come from climate change, but also 
just the way that our ecosystem works and the way in which we live. We're not only you know killing humans, we're killing species. Um, and so I think understanding the different impacts of a problem is interesting, the quality of a problem. And then there's also personal connection, right? So for me, women's health is definitely a very personal issue. It is for a lot of women. And so that's one of the reasons I am so inspired to work on it. Um, and I think these are the three main buckets I think about when you know, choosing a problem to solve or focusing on a problem. And I think uh, there's a lot of different groups that say, you know, one sort of category is what we should focus on, right? Like we should be focused on numbers or we should be focused on quantity or quality or it should be just personal connection. We shouldn't even consider everything else. And I don't necessarily think there is a right answer. I think it's very different for everyone. So curious to hear your perspective as well. Well, one thing I think about is what made everyone, um, at least our generation, so compelled to participate um, and being part of the Black Lives Matter movement when this has been an issue for decades, not just decades, just since the foundation of our country was formed, right? When there are so many issues that press us, that are impacting us, like we talk about climate change a lot, we talk about health inequities, we talk about um, lack of access to education. There are so many problems. What makes this particular problem different, right? So I feel like um, for the Black Lives Matter movement, that was a societal movement. That was a very social issue. So I'm just curious to hear, like, um, why do you think that social movements compel people so much more than uh, just problems that we know already exist or problems that we hear about all the time, right, that we're constantly exposed to? I think with social movements, um, I almost think it's like hard to get traction, right? Like it's hard to start, but once it's there, you can't ignore it. So especially with Black Lives Matter, I think, you know, obviously, especially in the last century, we've been beginning to realize what inequities exist within the structure of our society, but there hasn't been like as much attention to it, you know, as we've had in the past few years, like not nearly as much. And so I think once groups began to come out and speak out, especially through the use of different tools like social media, um, I think that it's been something that we've been unable to ignore. It's been a force that we have been very much so attuned to because we can't you know, unsee it now that we've seen it. Um, and so I think that's what makes, it's so hard to ignore, right? We can't, we can't really ignore inequities once we see them. And then I, I think the same sort of applies also to problems like climate change or women's health. I think once we sort of get back, you know, get beyond that friction and that we sort of gain that traction of, moving past uh, frictions that exist and understanding like how we can really bring people together to tackle an issue, I think that it's hard to go back to the way we once were. I like that you ended with, it's hard to go back, right? So one thing I wanna touch on is um, challenging the status quo and when it makes sense to challenge the status quo um, in one sense. So I, I was having a conversation the other day and it's like, what, how are you able to identify when there are transitions in your life? Um, and what this woman was telling me is that you notice there's a transition in your life when the things around you begin to feel uncomfortable, when you're not okay with them anymore, when you want something to change. So I think it's really important that you touched on it, like it's not comfortable anymore to stay in that area. You want there to be a shift in your life, and the things around you in your life will begin to 
give you signs of this makes sense, this is the next step, there is a transition. So I'm curious to hear, have there been any moments like that in your own life when you became really uncomfortable with the status quo and you felt like it was necessary to have a shift in your own life? I actually want to hear your perspective on that because I think you have uh, some interesting stories to tell. Well, for me personally, um, I started working on serving on the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council in my district just about a year ago because I was thinking about different questions like why do we not have, um, why do we not celebrate um, Hispanic Heritage Month or why do we not um, celebrate figures from the LGBTQ community when these are names that, uh, these are people that have contributed just as much to society as anybody else from a different background. Um, so I wanted to ask those types of questions on the council. Uh, so being on that council, like I was mentioning, I got a lot of interesting perspective, but that was my first, I don't know, like almost official step into um, working within my district. Um, and then later that year, uh, like I was saying earlier, I was on the safety and security council. And so what I had done over the summer is I had reached out to the chief innovation officer in my district, but we had never been able to set up a meeting. Um, and so when I was on that safety and security council, uh, the chief innovation officer was actually at my table. And I thought, well, this is perfect timing. I had, it didn't work out earlier, but this is almost my second incident in serving within my community. So having that interaction with her um, made me reflect that this makes sense, like this is a transition in my life that I should focus more on what my school district is doing, what the education system, not just what my school district is doing, but how that fits into something larger than my school district. And so following that, um, I decided to connect with her and start uh, working within the curriculum instruction and accountability department. So at that point in my life, it made sense to me to shift my focus and spend more time within my district, which I might not have necessarily done if I had not made that connection or had that specific sign within um, my own life and within my own experience. Right, and so I think this relates back to like, you know, drawing back global perspectives into our own communities. And so I think I had some, a lot of a similar experience where um, I've been working on women's health and problems at a large scale for, you know, a few years now. And I've been privileged enough to have the resources to, you know, uh, build applications and just work on women's health, whether that be through the lens of AI or just, you know, uh, through other solutions, whether those be like, you know, more cultural talking to people in different communities around the world. But uh, I think recently I've realized that it's also important to bring back these learnings into my own community, right? So how can I uh, foster a sort of um, like a, a lens in my own community where we're not afraid to talk about women's health and we're, you know, destigmatizing menstrual health and reproductive disorders, even providing these resources, resources to people within my own community. And so I think Know, bringing back learnings I've had a larger scale to uh, things that are impacting my own community and people not only within my school but also you know educators or community members um, has been a really interesting transition for me as well. Uh, can you elaborate on how you've been able to bring that back to your school and your community members like are you working on a specific project or like what's that process look like? Right so I think for example like an example of a project we're working on is curriculum, right? So working on curriculum in elementary schools. How are we uh, talking about menstrual health in elementary schools when students are first introduced to it? I think that's just an example of something that I'm trying to do right now. Okay, um, makes sense. And I'm curious to hear more, like, what have been some barriers in your conversations with people? Because you mentioned stigma in different cultures, but is there stigma within your own community? 
Yeah, I think that there is definitely stigma within my own community, but I also think uh, the power of being a youth voice and being youth within your own community, or even someone who doesn't usually speak up, is that your voice is amplified and people will listen to you a lot more than we sort of expect them to. And so I think, yes, there are barriers because you know, it's hard to change curriculum and it's hard to change systems in the same way because most often educators aren't really in charge of all of the curriculum that they make. A lot of the curriculum that um, is sort of integrated comes from higher powers, right? From uh, superintendents or districts or you know even the state of California or any state at all um, and so I think that it's hard to go in and really change what's happening at schools and curriculum because most often I'm not really in charge of that and nor are you know the teachers and the educators it's it's something that has to happen from uh, a, a larger scale so I think even getting people again sort of that whole idea of like top down and you know ground up uh, getting people to sort of advocate for what they want systems to change and going to policymakers to make those changes is what's, what's, what's more powerful because we can't really expect policymakers to make those changes themselves. Yeah, I'm curious to hear. You said uh, it was more impactful for you to say something. And why do you think that is? Like, why do you think it means so much for you as a student in your own community to bring up a problem to the table versus somebody else? And why do you, why is, I guess in a way, why are students or just youth people like more qualified or just qualified in general to talk about these issues and bring them to the table and implement them? Right, and so I think when we think about groups that often speak up, especially within the education system, it's not usually youth, which is insane to me because you know, youth and students are the biggest stakeholders in the education system. So it inherently makes sense that we're the ones who are speaking up and we're the ones who are sharing our voice a lot more often than educators are. Um, and so I think the reason that being a youth or you know being a younger person, especially in any system, is more impactful is because you're not expected to speak up. Or you know when you're in a marginalized community and you're speaking up within a system, people don't usually hear your voice. And so I think it's a lot more amplified. Um, what are, what are your, some of your thoughts? And why, why do you think it's actually more important to be you know, a youth or a marginalized individual and actually speak up and, you know, hearing also some of the perspectives that you have within your own community and also at a larger scale. Well, I mean, when you talk about youth or marginalized communities, I feel like there's just less of us in those spaces. So it seems like a more unique perspective. And I, it seems like more, it seems different and you're able to bring different insights, but like, like you were mentioning, um, I think it's just, unexpected in a way sometimes. So because it's unexpected, people will pay more attention to it than somebody that's already familiar. But at the same time, I think it's also about just being closer to the issue. So when you're closer to the issue, I think you're just more dedicated to making it happen, making it follow through. And I think just that relationship of like how that issue impacts you and like how, like how dedicated you are to pursuing it and executing it and following it, a lot, following it through the entire journey is something that I would think about and why it makes sense for youth to talk about these types of issues because it impacts us the most in a way because we'll be living with them for the longest amount of time. Even when you think about you know, youth-led change at a global scale, I think it's very impactful because we have a very fresh set of perspectives, right? And so even making that connection to the lack of boundaries between the digital world and the physical world. Um, this is the new norm, and this is also what we've grown up with. And so 
we only see the world through this perspective of like being very limitless and having all of this global connection and uh, really being able to talk to anyone, right? And so I think this sort of like naive nature that sometimes we have and the ability to just connect with such a large group of people allows us to think of problems as being limitless and being thinking of solutions as being limitless. I think that being youth also brings in a fresh set of perspectives, in a sense, towards the problems that we're trying to solve at a global scale. It's interesting that you said naive, because uh, I think that is true to some extent, that oh, we're so ambitious, like these problems are much larger than us, like how can we expect ourselves to be able to solve them? But I think there's a lot of beauty in being naive because like you're saying it's a fresh perspective and having a pr fresh perspective again can allow you to view a problem in a different way and approach it in a way that even though it might sound unrealistic or like it might not make sense at first it's still something that's new and still something that's like hey why don't we touch on this again right even though to somebody else it might seem something that's like old or like already been done but I think it's that I guess, persistence to try, at least like put an attempt towards it and see how far it can actually go instead of writing it off as something that's like not even possible because it's something that's already been touched or like done before. So I'm curious actually to hear your thoughts on um, just looking at problems and why it's still worth solving problems even if people are in that space or even if it's something that's been done before, quote unquote. Right, I think that very often we all have a fear of stepping into new spaces and we have a fear of doing things that we've never done before but I think this is almost a call to action and just to say like I don't think we should let that stop us because being someone that you know isn't fully experienced I think you have a very high level perspective on things right like I don't know the nuances of everything related to you know climate change for example but I think as an individual who has heard from people and has spoken with people about this issue and even understand it at a high level, I think I don't have the biases that exist um, that you know you almost have when you're very well versed in something, right? So I think you're more acknowledging of just your perspective and it's also the biases that you have sort of affect you less because you're more, I don't know, you just don't develop as many biases towards something. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You, again, you don't have those preconceived notions um, of like whether or not it may not work. So I think that point on bias is definitely a really key component on why fresh perspectives and new people to a space uh, makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, and I think this, you know, is important to really anything, um, whether that be right innovation, working to solve global issues, but also um, like social movements, right? I think really pushing ourselves to step out of our comfort zone and interact with people that we've never interacted before with before is you know, an integral part of what drives change. I think pushing ourselves outside of our circle of competency, outside of our comfort zone, um, pushes us to make change because we're not staying within what we know. We're you know, venturing out into what we don't know. So what are some examples of you venturing out into what's this uh, uncomfortable I'm curious to hear what that experience has been like for you. Yeah, I think, I mean, honestly, I think I, I talked about women's health a lot here. As If you can't tell, I'm, like, very passionate about it. But um, especially with women's health, I think that there's always been a lot of stigma in my own life around it. Um, and so really stepping out and 
seeking perspectives and asking people what their experiences have been has been something I have been so unfamiliar with. So the fact that I've been even able to ask questions about this is shocking to me because I haven't been doing this for so long. I'm still a teenager, right? Um, but really going past like the way I've been cultured and the sort of biases that I've grown up with to really, you know, seek understanding and like explore my own curiosity towards this inequity that makes absolutely no sense for me has been extremely uncomfortable um, because I have been, you know, I feel like subject to a lot of stigma around it. So the fact that I myself am going about breaking stigma um, and seeking perspectives, encouraging people who don't often talk about it to share their stories because their stories are the ones that are often mo most necessary to making change has been a really, really interesting experience. Yeah, and for the record, Monacy talks about hormones a lot. <laughs> she was in her biology class, and they just happened to be talking about hormones, and she's like, Swalia, I already know all of this. <laughs> oh, so she's my local hormone expert. But something else I'm curious about is I feel like women's health has become something that's almost like a familiar territory to you. So where do you go after that, after you've almost made women's health comfortable? How do you continue to challenge yourself and move into spaces that are still uncomfortable? I think this is a really good question because I think I'm so familiar with the subject and I just feel so comfortable talking about it that I don't realize how uncomfortable everyone else is talking about it. Um, so that's been an interesting experience because sometimes I'll just be you know, in a conversation asking questions and people are like, no one's ever asked me that. Like, that's insane. Like, do you just go out and ask people that? And I'm like, yeah. Like, it's just like, why don't we talk about it? Like, why aren't we asking these questions? Um, but I guess pushing myself to find more discomfort is also not just in understanding the problem, but also in developing solutions, right? I think the more well-versed you are in something, again, the more you understand the nuances of a situation, the nuances of a problem, right? So when I thought about women's health like the first time, you know, when I was just learning about what reproductive disorders were, I was like, okay, it's just like a health condition. Like, let's make a treatment. Like, let's go, guys. Like, it's time. Let's, you know, make a medication. Or let's, you know, start diagnosing reproductive disorders. Like, yeah, we can just build AI models. but. You know, as you begin building AI models and you begin developing solutions, you realize that it's not that easy, right? So, you know, I have built AI models to detect reproductive disorders, but it's also about data. You know, what data am I getting? What uh, sort of numbers are going into training these models, right? So I can't really deploy solutions unless I have adequate data. And at the same time, how do you deploy the solutions when you have adequate data, right? in the presence of all of this culture and stigma, how do you go about actually implementing solutions? How do you actually you know, roll out an application places where women don't really have access to technology, don't even have digital literacy or digital mobility where they can properly use phones or even know how applications work, right? So I think the more you learn and the more perspectives you gain, the more you understand that if deploying a solution isn't so easy. And I think this is also a good place to wrap up because I think we're running out of time. But um, yeah, feel free to ask any questions. We're going to be here for the next little while, and we'd love to talk to all of you. So thank you for coming. Do we want to take like live Q&A if anyone has any questions? Go for it. If not, we'll <laughs> be up here so you guys can come and talk to us. We met through a program called the Knowledge Society. Shout out Damien and Kim who are here with us. But um, yeah, it's basically a global accelerator for teenagers who are working to solve the world's biggest problems. And 
So it's a pretty cool program. If you guys um, you know, know any teenagers, you should tell them to check it out. Yeah, 100%. And so along with that, me and Monacy just connected on one, wanting to discuss uh, women's issues specifically. And so we thought, well, a podcast is a great platform to discuss that because the point of a podcast is to host conversations. And a lot of change can be made through conversations because a lot are one of our biggest themes in this entire episode has been talking about how relationships can be impactful and how human-to-human -human connection can also be a really uh, meaningful form of change. So that's sort of what led us to starting the Vol Studies podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Do you want to take that slide? Do you want to start? Mm, I think you can go for it, Monacy. Okay. Um, I'll try to answer your question because I think there are a few parts to that. But um, I think sort of a, a core component of that question is just like acknowledging biases, right? The biases that I have. So um, I think that honestly, like I, I know we talked about this a little bit, but conversation and really uh, encouraging yourself to step out of the circle that you're in when... Um, working on solving problems has been a key component. So for example, for women's health, right? Uh, I didn't even think about data for a really long time. I was like, okay, you know, AI and women's health, this is such a cool intersection. So I started building, you know, models to detect reproductive disorders. And so now I have these models, right? But what do you do with them when you can't really deploy them and you also don't have enough data to begin deploying them, right? So there's all these like barriers to entry for when you actually have the technology, how do you deploy the technology? And so. You know, even when we think about data, right, I, I was like, okay, I, you know, I can find a data set. How hard can it be? But, uh, for example, one of the models I have is for the detection of PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome. And so when you think about data for PCOS, there's such limited data sets. And so one of the few data sets that, you know, is available is data of women in, like, a specific town in India that have PCOS and some of their biomarkers, right? Um, and that's like one of the only data sets available. And so let's say I build a model and train it on this data um, specific to women in this uh, region of India. How do I deploy the solution to be a global solution? I can't because this model has only been trained on data from these women in India. And it just doesn't make sense to roll out as a global thing. So I, and I think there's like these little nuances you don't even think about um, when you're developing a solution. The further you go on into it, the more you realize about what's actually missing. And so it wasn't until a few conversations I had um, that I realized, you know, I need more data, but how do you actually go about getting data, right? Like, you can't just Google it. And so then I was like, okay, next step is, like, I have to talk to people and get their data that isn't publicly available. And so uh, talking to people and actually hustling ways to get data has been, you know, a really interesting experience. And I was like, I didn't even think this would be a barrier when I started working on this project, right? I thought I would develop this model and it's good to go. Um, but I think the longer that you spend actually exploring a project and working on solution deployment, the more you learn about what's actually missing. I think that's an example. I don't know if you want to add to that. No, I think you answered that well, yeah. Yeah, well, if you guys have any other questions, feel free to ask. But thank you all for coming. <laughs>